Please uh, take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Beginning a few weeks ago, we started uh, in Philippians and we're working our way through passage by passage. Uh, God, in his wisdom, revealed himself through uh, letters, letters that apostles wrote to the churches uh, in the first century following Christ's life. And uh, one of those churches, the church of Philippi, a church where Paul had gone and ministered and planted the church, was now a church that needed encouragement from uh, their apostle. He was in prison and he urged them uh, to live together as one people, uh, united, uh, putting aside some of the petty differences. Later on, he's going to address two individuals and ask them to, to set aside their ongoing conflict for the sake of their unity and love in the in the church. And from his uh, jail cell, uh, he demonstrated how hope in Christ and in Christ alone was able to overcome all of those sorts of, of, of petty circumstances. That's what he would have called, I think, perhaps his imprisonment. It's a petty circumstance. To us, it would be, uh, you know, the ruin of, of life. But for him, it was only one more way for him to share the gospel with people he couldn't have otherwise. And uh, his last thought that we read last week was, let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. This concern for the sake of the whole body. And we said that, that what we have in Christ is, is manifold blessing and manifold care from God. And that the, the picture he has in mind is for us to abandon ourselves uh, to that care so that we could then be more concerned about the needs and interests of others. Well, we get a picture of that today, of, of exactly what Paul had in mind. In Philippians 2, verse 5. Before we read it, let's pray and ask for God's blessing. Father, we're uh, going to read words that were explicitly about your Son. And they are true. And they are beautiful. And we want to behold them and take them in. We want to be nourished upon them. And we long for you to minister to us the grace we need to see the Savior, the Lord Jesus, and to recognize his beauty and to see you produce that same beauty in us for his sake. We pray that you would bless the time we spend reading, that you would nourish and feed and cause your children uh, to flourish upon your word and be pleased to be to work in your church and to make your church who you want it to be. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Philippians 2, verse 5. This is God's word. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. It is completely true. And it is utterly trustworthy. 
uh, Tim Keller, pastor in uh, New York City, uh, said, it tells an illustration, a story of when he was pastoring in a small church in Virginia. And uh, he had preached on what it meant to love your neighbor as yourself. And after the service, uh, one of the high school age girls from the church came up to him and said, OK, I listened to your sermon last night. I was our school at homecoming. I was on the homecoming court. Another girl won. What you're telling me is that if I were to really love like God wants us to, I would have been just as happy for her winning as I would have been myself. Well, the first thought that Dr. Keller had was, oh, that can't be. But then he said, to, but what he said was, that's exactly right. That is what the Bible calls us to. That kind of selfless, remarkable love that says your interests, whatever they are, are just as significant as mine. That my heart would be as, as gripped by what matters to you as what matters to me. And when I hear Dr. Keller put it so powerfully and so succinctly and so correctly, I think, it makes me go, how can we ever get there? I can't even imagine what that looks like. When I was in college, there was a, a big sense of, of we want our Christian groups to be unified. There were lots of Christian groups on our campus, lots of them. And it seemed like we were always competing for students, competing for influence. And, and in, in some ways, we felt against each other. And uh, even the fraternities had a way to say we have common interests. And so the fraternities had the IFC, the Interfraternal Council, interfrater I can't say it. It's the IFC, and it was their council of doing things together. They would plan their rush calendars and things that were of common interest to the fraternities. And we thought, how can they do that if we can't? So we said, let's form a, a CFC, because we love being copycats. And it was the Christian Faith Council, which I can say. And... Uh, this Christian Faith Council started planning a few things to try to help these Christian groups be together, be a little more unified, to, to show something on campus and say, we're brothers and sisters. Now, fast forward six years later, I'd come back from being uh, a, a student to now being the RUF campus minister. And this same Christian Faith Council I'd helped start was still there, and they were organizing events. Um, that uh, I then selfishly perhaps thought cut into my time and you know, I didn't want to do any more. But one of them, the biggest of them all, was a, a Thanksgiving uh, time uh, meal for all the Christian groups to get together and eat and give thanks. Now, that sounds fantastic. And so they would get, they would reserve one of the largest rooms on campus. They would have the meal catered by the university. And uh, the Christian groups would come and we would gather uh, in, in this large room and eat together. And eating together in the Bible is significant and beautiful. But what I noticed was that every time we went in, the folks from, say, RUF, my group, would sit together at one or two tables. And, and the folks from the Wesley Foundation would sit at one or two tables, but different ones. And the folks from the Baptist uh, Student Union would sit somewhere. And, and basically what you had were a bunch of Christian groups still together who just happened to be in the same room. And I thought, this can't be what unity really is. In fact, I would say, according to Paul, unless you are being concerned with others' interests 
as at least equal to your own, it's not unity. And since in our around our tables, I wasn't becoming more concerned with the interest of my Baptist brothers and sisters. I wasn't becoming more connected by relationships where I learned the interest of those who were part of other Christian groups on campus. There wasn't anything that's real unity. It had the appearance of togetherness, but no substance. The substance that Paul wants for the church, the substance that God wants for his church, is that we would begin to consider each other's interest as equal to our own. What matters to you matters to me because it matters to you. That that attitude would be pervasive in our hearts. And I'll be honest, I can't even imagine it. I don't know what that would look like or feel like to be as gripped by someone else's promotion at work as I would be my own. To be as devastated by someone else's illness as I would my own. I need a good picture of this. And so Paul says, let me show you what this looks like. Verse 5. Have this mind, have this mindset, have this thought among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I want you to have the same mind as Jesus. And the rest of this passage that I read is about the mind of Christ. You're, you're getting into not just what he did or what he accomplished, but to his very heart. This is what he thought as he was doing what we read about in the Gospels. Have this mind. So I want to reflect on three things today and some more next week that were the mind of Christ. Have this thought in your head. The first is he didn't consider his prestige or his honor something to be protected and held on to. He thought being a servant was a good place. And he thought obedience is the way of life. Okay, so those, those are three things I want us to reflect on. The thing that God wants us to think. We don't hold on to our places of honor. In verse 5, we learn, that, or verse 6 rather, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God. Now, when we read that, the first word that sticks out to us is the form. Ideas that, that he had something that was sort of the shape of God, because that's what form means to us, it's the shape. But that's not really the best way to understand that word. It's really more like essence. Who, who being fully in the shape, in, in the physical sense, in the spiritual sense, in every sense, he was completely the form of God. Um, uh, I was listening to a pastor from our presbytery preach at, at, at Presbytery once, and he said, there is nothing ungodlike in Christ. Uh, I want to say it again because I, I wrote it down and I wanted to memorize it. There is nothing ungodlike in Christ. Everything that you see about Jesus is the picture and the full expression of God because he is God. He was the very essence of God. And this gets into that, that really rich and deep doctrine that is the heartbeat of, of all of Christianity, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father and the Son are distinct, but they are equal 
and they are the same in substance. I'm grateful that just a few weeks ago, Roy taught on this. And I would urge you to, to listen again if you listen to it once. And if you now haven't, we'll, we'll, we'll make the recording available. We want you to have it. To think about what it means that God is triune. And when he says, who, though he was in the form of God, you need to understand that Paul being a Jew, started from day one of his Jewishness. The first thing his parents would teach him about God is found in Deuteronomy. And they would have taught him to memorize this and say it. They would have said it in worship. It would have been something akin to their Apostles' Creed that we quote regularly. Here's what they would have said. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. That would have been sort of the opening lesson of, of Judaism. The Lord your God, there is one God, and there is no other. And so for, for Paul to talk about this man in these terms was revolutionary. Paul was a Jew. Now, to, to Greeks and, and to some of the Gentiles, they had, you know, Zeus and, and uh, you know, Hermes and all these other gods that would regularly appear in some kind of human form. This wasn't been the, the most radical thing to them. But to the Jews, just saying this, this is the infinite, transcendent, magnificent God, creator of heaven and earth, who holds the stars in his hands. Jesus is that God. And every time you read about it in the Old Testament, when someone were to catch a tiny glimpse of the scene of God, it says that they came unglued. Now, Moses says, could I see you, God? He says, no, you'll die. When Isaiah gets to a, a, a sort of a glimpse into the throne room of heaven, it has clouds covering God, but angels flying around crying out, holy, holy, holy is God. The angels were singing hymns to him. And Isaiah says, I, I'm going to die. I don't belong here. Whenever someone came across the, the glory and greatness of God, it wrecked them. This is the life that Jesus had before he was born to Mary. This was his experience. Perfect glory, perfect harmony with the Father. Angels who worshipped him. Angels who, when they were seen by men, men were tempted to worship the angels. And the angels said, it's not me. You should see God. We can't even look at him. It's fantastic. Paul says that is what Christ was like. In, uh, in, in, in the letter to the uh, church in Corinth, one of the letters, Paul says uh, th these kind of very fascinating words. He says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And a lot of us will hear that and think that's about heaven. Because we can't even imagine how good it will really be. But he's actually quoting Isaiah. And Isaiah was telling a prophecy about how God would come and be among his people. And when, when Paul says that in Corinth, he ends it by saying this. No mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him, but it has been revealed to you in these last days. He was talking about God coming in the flesh. And Isaiah and Paul were saying, if it hadn't happened... No one could have even dreamt it up. 
It's the most remarkable thing. That's the God that Paul's talking about. And Jesus, knowing that position, knowing the glory, says this, or practices this, thinks this. He did not count equality with God, the Father, a thing to be grasped. Have this position, I have this place of honor and prestige, but I don't need to hold on to it. I'm just going to let it go. I'm going to let go of the privilege. I'm going to let go of the position. I'm going to let go of the status. It says that he could walk among people and they could ignore him. They couldn't ignore Jesus in heaven. He was too glorious for them to even try. But he put on flesh and he walked among us and lots of people went, eh. Think about it. It says that he made it his practice to go weekly to the synagogue. That's where they worshipped. He'd go sit in the synagogue with everybody else and somebody would get up and start talking about the law. One guy falls asleep over here. Another guy's kind of, you know, dueling on his paper. You can imagine I'm anachronistic here. But he looks around and he sees all this half-hearted worship to him. He, he watches them sing with kind of eh, singing to him. And he's there among them, ignored. Because he didn't hold the place of honor and beauty to be something he possessed and held on to and grasped and protected. Now, remember, have this mind in you that was in Christ. Can you give up your place of honor? Can you, can you give up the places where people look at you and say, look at your strength, look at your, your beauty, look at what you have going for you. Can you give all that notice and attention up for the sake of a community? That's what Paul's calling you to, to. To give up this place of of where I'm noticed and thanked and recognized in order to serve a community and its health. To consider others' interests more than my own. It's not just, though, that he considered his privilege something that he didn't have to hold on to and protect. He thought being a servant was perfectly in line with his glory. Verse 7. This one who was the eternal, transcendent God, verse 7, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born the likeness of men. He came and, and lived our life. The word likeness here again isn't he was similar but different. He came and lived like us in every way. Now, let me just explore one aspect of that. What does it mean that he emptied or made himself nothing? Well, it's that he refused to, to retain those divine prerogatives he had. He had the right to command angels. He says so. He's, he's about to be arrested by uh, some uh, Jewish authorities in the middle of the night. And Peter pulls out a sword and cuts off one person's ear. Uh, Jesus says, put your sword away. Don't you know I could call legions of annual, angels right now? And they would all come and protect us. But he didn't. He gave up that divine prerogative of angels serving his beck and call. 
when he is in the wilderness, the tempter says, you could make stone turn into bread. But at the precise moment he does that, he's taking those divine prerogatives back up instead of living in the likeness of men. And so he refuses to do it. But probably only weeks later, he's among a crowd of thousands of people and they are hungry. And so he manifests bread from nowhere for them. He never used his divine prerogatives for himself. Always for others, he came and lived like you. Setting aside the divine prerogatives so that he could live just like us as a servant. Let's make it even more. When Jesus, who could have chosen any family that he wanted for which to to, uh, be born and to carry out his life, Jesus chose a family from a small, no-nothing town of Nazareth. More than that, he chose a very poor family. We know that because the Old Testament says the firstborn of any family, you're to go to the temple and offer a, a bull or a lamb. Unless you're poor, you're allowed to offer two doves. When you read about Joseph and Mary taking Jesus to the temple, it says they offered two doves. Jesus chose a family that was poor. And when we read of his ministry, occasionally, on a number, at least two or three occasions, his mother and other family members show up to be part of the scene. But Joseph never does again. And church history and most scholars really think that probably what happened was that Joseph died while he was Jesus was a teenager. And of course, you always wonder, Jesus came to perform his ministry. He lived to about 33 to 35 years old, but he only had about three years of ministry. What was he doing for the other 30 years? The best guess is he was taking care of his family because that's what the oldest son did. Denying himself the place that he could have taken so that he could serve one family. He took the place of a servant. And what's more is he took the place as your servant. He carried your griefs. He bore your sins and iniquities. The ones you couldn't carry, he carried. He became your servant. We live in a culture that says you can either be great or be the servant, but you can't be both. You can't be great and the bottom rung. Jesus takes off his robe, puts a towel around his waist, and washes his disciples' feet and says, you can be the king of heaven and earth and the servant of all. They go together beautifully in Jesus. He became a servant. That was his mindset. And have this same mind in you. Where can I serve? What are the needs around me? It calls us to to look around and to see people and to say, God has made me here not so that I can get what I can out of life, but so that I can give what I have, what he's given me to others. Now, just ponder for a minute. You know, let's just do the math. If I quit looking out for myself, and we all did, we're all going to quit looking out for self. We're going to start looking out for each other. In a room like this, instead of having one person looking out for me, I'd have 115. 
And just in the sheer numbers, that's better. This is, this is designed to produce a beautiful community that looks like Jesus. Because that's the kind of life he gave and led. And he calls you to the same mind. The last thing is he says that he thought is obedience is a way of life. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was regularly talking about, I didn't come to do my will, but to do my Father's will. I came to obey. I came under the law. I came submitting to the law so that I could fulfill it. One of the things the law said very explicitly was that anyone who gets hanged on a tree is cursed. Jesus became obedient to that law, even to the point of death and that death on a cross, a tree. A place where he would uh, serve us and obey the law and obey his father and bring about your salvation. Obedience was his way of life. And it wasn't just a way of life for him. It became your way of life. His obedience became your life. His obedience is what made God satisfied with you. His obedience to the cross is what took your sin and carried it away from you forever. My goal here is not to to make you feel guilty. Although I suspect that's the first thought we have when we hear this. Man, I don't have a mindset like that. I don't know how I'm going to get there. My goal is to make you see that this mindset was what Jesus had for you. That, that, that he put your interest ahead of his so that you could have life. He became your servant. He obeyed God for you. He let go of his prestige and honor so that you could know God. Despite the fact that you can't put others' interest ahead of your own. There's a, an interesting little parable, I guess. We'll call it a parable. It, it's, it's not a true story. But it was a, a great vision. And uh, here's, here's what it said. Uh, Seth was there with the, the, at the deathbed of Adam. And he was weeping, knowing that his father was about to die. And so he went to the place where the Garden of Eden and the angel stood to keep people out. And he begged the angel... To say, would you give me, would you give me one bite of the tree of, of life so that I can give it to my father so that he won't die? The angel said, I will not. But he went and he took a branch from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the very one that Adam and Eve had taken that brought death into the world. And he gave him that branch and he said, listen, plant this branch and when this tree bears fruit, your father will have life. And the parable goes that they planted that tree and it grew into a, a, a beautiful tree that never bore fruit, but eventually it was cut down and made into a cross. And Jesus was put on that cross. It's not true. I want you to remember, this is a parable. But the picture is right. The tree, a tree, became the place where we went into rebellion and said, I, don't, I want high position. I want what God won't give me. I, I want more than I have. Instead of saying, I, want, I, I don't need to hold on to my place, I ask for more. And, and 
a tree was the place where I said I deserve to be served. And a tree was a place where I said I'm not going to obey. And a tree was the place where Jesus said, but I will take care of all of that for you. And when that tree bore the fruit of Jesus' crucifixion, it became life for Adam. And it becomes life for you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want your blessing.